Could we all live a life of luxury that offers us comfort and security and looks after the planet? Across this series, I'm exploring the idea of luxury for all. How can we move the concept of luxury from exclusive and expensive to inclusive and accessible? And could raising our collective ambition for public luxury offer a better quality of life for all of us? I'm Natasha Locken. Welcome to this first series of Our Lives, Our Planet, a Global Action Plan podcast. In this podcast series, we're applying the idea of luxury for all to six different areas of everyday life to see if redefining luxury and shifting our aspirations would help solve the climate and inequality crises that we face. In this episode, we're looking at the online world, virtual luxury. We are dependent, some might admit to being addicted, to living our lives online. But this doesn't always feel safe, healthy or positive. The online world as we know it is designed by and for adults, yet one third of its users are children. If the internet was designed for children first, would it be a safer, better place to engage for all of us? A more luxurious experience? I'll be joined by two experts to explore this further. Later on, we'll hear from Dr. Ellie Hansen, clinical psychologist and researcher, about how and why online engagement can cause harm to children. First, I spoke to my colleague, Oliver Hayes, Policy and Campaigns Lead at Global Action Plan. Oliver's background is as an environmental campaigner, and he's now focused on the role of big tech in driving consumerism and other human and planetary harms. I wanted to understand why such an essential part of our everyday lives is also deeply problematic. Everything we do is increasingly reliant on on the digital sphere. And that means you've got to look at it from a whole range of angles. You can't just think of it only as a useful tool, but you've got to think about, well, what, at what cost? You know, what, what's this doing? What are its impacts? Are we thinking about the consequences of this digital economy clearly enough? And one of the things that we, we've looked into at Gap is, okay, so the advertising itself is trying to compel us to buy more stuff. And it's doing that in a pretty supercharged way. As you say, we've always had advertising. There have always been billboards, magazine adverts, et cetera, et cetera. But now we've got it combined with data. And that means that if I, during my digital day, leave all sorts of little breadcrumbs little snippets of data suggesting that these are the sorts of things I might be interested in buying, or these are the sorts of websites I like reading, or this is where I am logging on the internet from, or this is the kind of device I'm using, and it might be an expensive device or a cheap device. All of these ultimately build up a picture about who we are, what we're like, and what we're likely to want to engage with in terms of both content and advertising. And so we get served the stuff that is kind of tailored, if you like, for us. And at this point, it's important to say it's not always perfect. Like lots of us will have experienced recommendations or adverts that you think, well, that's, you know, that's not me. But increasingly it is, it's pretty, it's pretty tailored and it's pretty predicted. And the sort of flip side of that, or the counter, if I can be devil's advocate, is people would say, but isn't that a good thing? Don't you want to? Okay, so it's not always perfect, but generally speaking, if you know, the machines recognise that we have a preference for X or Y or Z and want to service more of that, 
that's a good thing, isn't it? Yes, you, you've done a very good job of impersonating the press office of uh, Meta <laughs> and TikTok and everyone else who say, our users prefer the personalised experience, which is a lovely way of saying, our users don't mind being spied on and our users don't mind their data, which clearly has an economic value, being sold and profited on to the great benefit of us and our bank balances. Because these platforms are advertising companies. When it comes down to it, that's the business they're in. Something like 97% of the revenue that Meta receive comes from, from advertising because that's the business model. The products we use are by and large free. And so Meta get paid by advertisers to advertise to us and they sell advertisers or make the data available to advertisers in such a way that the advertisers feel like they've got a good chance of, of selling the right product to the right person. So it's important that that's how we think about these, these companies. And then when, when it starts to get really interesting, it's like, okay, so if that's the business model, if the business model is try and get as many adverts in front of the right people as possible, then you start to look at everything else they're doing through that prism. And so the idea of like content which is recommended for us is not because they think we're going to really like watching it. It's because their sole aim, and this isn't, you know, this is going to sound sort of slightly conspiratorial or like, you know, tin hat, but it, it's just kind of hard business logic, if you like. Their sole aim is that we spend as users of their products, spend as much time as possible using their products and engaging with their products because that gives the most opportunities for us to be served adverts, which makes them the most money. So if we put our phone down after five minutes because we were bored, that's terrible for business. Even if actually we had a really positive view of the experience, if we thought, oh, I really enjoyed that five minutes. That's lovely. I'll go and do that again later. That's much less good for them than if we spend 15 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, two hours disappearing down rabbit holes that we had no intention of doing because then we end up just generating a huge stream of data and watching a lot of adverts and making them a lot of money. The idea that we, our identities and thoughts and desires, are being commodified on a massive scale is uncomfortable. Even more so when you think about that happening to children and young people. Dr. Ellie Hansen is a clinical psychologist and researcher specialising in online harms to children. I asked her what we know about the ways in which children engage with the online world. It's an excellent question and in a way it's actually a very difficult question to answer because we don't have a neutral online. So, you know, we can look at how young people, children and young people are engaging online but we can't, it's very difficult to disentangle what of that engagement is kind of authentically them versus what is the product of the manipulative forces that are being trained on their minds effectively. You know, what we certainly can say is, you know, we can look at what young people need and enjoy and want, you know, and it's things like friendship, to enjoy friendships, to learn, to be creative also just kind of escapism and fundamentally play. You know, play, play is a really big thing, isn't it, to, to childhood, to all different stages of childhood, in fact, including adolescence. And so it's, you know, all of those motives children and young people bring to their 
online experience to what they're looking for online. If if you've got a child and say, you know, they go online and they might go to a website or, you know, whether it's a website or an app and they're interested in play, that's that's what they want. They want some fun. So what happens next? What what do we understand about where what their journey is, what the interactions are, and I suppose what the kind of forces are that they're subjected to along that journey? So they'll be entering into that platform. Like you say, they've got a particular desire. They want to play, maybe want to kind of have some escapism. And that platform will already likely have data on them, possibly even from other platforms that they've been on and kind of data sharing and will also and so we'll then suggest a variety of content to them and we'll be measuring you know the minutiae of how that child behaves so you know how long they hover over a video for etc and they're not just being presented with a kind of natural diversity of possible play experiences they are being presented with things that are capital productive, for want of a better phrase. You know, these companies, their core intention, obviously, is to make money. And so they would like to present, they present things to children that are likely to keep that child engaged online for longer. Now, you might think that that would then naturally map on to the child's core interests and motives. But we know that it really doesn't, because there are some things that engage children and and indeed adults for longer online that really don't correspond to their core interests, which we might call their kind of autonomy. But it's, it's, this has been termed um, race to the bottom of the brainstem. Um, You know, so let's just use the example of sexual content. You know, we know that the big tech companies um, are bombarding children, knowing that they're children with sexual content. It's often intermingled with adverts that clearly show that the company knows that they're a child. And, you know, if that child hovers over the sexual image or presses like, you know, that they are then bombarded with more and more of the same, which isn't really going to be corresponding to that child's core autonomy, their their core intentions for going online a lot of the time. And so it's very entrapping. And we and we know that also that, that negative emotions keep people on for longer. So there's a bombard of content that will stir up insecurity, that will stir up feelings of, you know, in-group, out-group, engendering, you know, suspicion of, of people that are not like you, that kind of thing. Hearing you describe that, it, it feels to me like, you know, we, we use the word navigate. We say navigate the online world, navigate a website. And that's not really the right word, is it? I mean, we and children in particular... They're not navigating the online world. They're just being led. Yes, exactly. So we, you know, we might just take, I mean, I'll take the example of my son who's, who's 13. You know, TikTok and Instagram will know that he's a 13-year-old boy. They'll know who his friends are, who are other 13-year-old boys. And then he's being served content, for example, content that is these kind of like little video shorts interviewing women about how they use men you know so, so it's actually misogynistic content and you know this is a boy who I've, I've never heard express that kind of content uh, you know th- those views himself but 
coming back to what I was saying about negative emotions keep you on for longer, you know, that, that the algorithm knows that that kind of content may fire up a young adolescent who's figuring out their own gender identity and how they feel about how boys feel about girls, how girls feel about boys, etc. And, you know, that, that's going to rile them. And, and I think we are seeing that. I think we're seeing a rigidification of gender norms and a divisiveness between the genders that, that has been amplified is greater than it has been in previous years. So that's just, you know, that's just one example. And that's also really interesting to think about that online experience happening at a time when pre the internet, confess that I'm old enough to maybe remember that. As you say, young people, adolescents are going through that period of figuring out that stuff anyway. That's just, that's, that's part of your development in life. You're trying to work out who you are, who these people are, how you want to interact. So is this about the online world? How much is this about the offline world? Like how often are the two, like do, what, what do we know about how the two are intersecting or not? I suppose, I guess what I'm asking is, does this sort of stuff that happens online, does that play out in offline interactions as well? Are we seeing that kind of broader impact on kids, just social development generally? I think we are. It's hard to disentangle. And I'm certainly not here to say that all of our societal ills are because of the online. But I guess what I am saying is that, you know, yeah, the human psyche is complex and we have great potential to do good and great potential to do harm. And what's happening, you know, the the term algorithmic amplification, that it's taking, for want of a better word, kind of baser parts of the human psyche and amplifying them. And, and then coming to your question about how is what's happening online kind of playing out offline, I think we can see it in lots of different pathways, as it were. So just, just to give you a couple of examples, we know that young people are being exposed to huge amounts of porn online, both through the big main tube sites, but also via social media. So the most common place for young people to see porn now is Twitter. And I think that's been a kind of interesting and really worrying development, how porn is just interspliced with other content. So it's been kind of normalised and legitimised. And again, it's that kind of race to the bottom of the brainstem, you know, where sexual content is a particular hook. And even if you don't want to be thinking about it, if it's just there, it grabs people's attention and, and then can lead them down a bit of a kind of porn rabbit hole. And we know from research that exposure to porn increases rates of sexual harassment. You know, so it's, for me, it's no coincidence that we had Everyone's Invited a few years ago, which completely corresponded to smartphones and the immersion of porn, porn entering young people's everyday lives in a way that we've never had before. Um, and then just to give a second example, we've got, you know, the really robust research now that we can be very confident in showing how Instagram and similar social media have played a causal role, you know, a, a very likely causal role in young women's distress, particularly around body image. So Instagram has been pushing Again, coming back to negative emotions, it's been generating insecurity and social comparison, telling young women that how they look is core to their worth and then giving them a kind of hierarchy of of appearance. You know, so you have to look this way. And it's no coincidence that how you have to look 
according to this scheme, costs a lot of money. It's not saying that natural is beautiful. And even when it does say natural is beautiful, we're talking about a fake natural that you have to spend lots of money on. So you've got this kind of fake beauty, heavy inverted commas here, being pushed to girls that they have to spend a lot of money on, that they feel like they're always falling short of. And the the, the direct real world effect of that is higher rates of depression and anxiety in in girls and self-harm, suicidality, the rest. You know, it's... This is a this is a real scandal, in my opinion. There won't be, you know, a parent in the land who hasn't uh, certainly, if their if their children are, you know, over uh, sort of infant age, who hasn't at some point thought, ah, oh, my kid's spending too much time on their phone or on their tablet. And the really sort of easy response to that is to either blame yourself or as a parent. And it's, this isn't just restricted to parents. It might be educators. It might, you know, anybody. I think even adults. I think adults like yourself. You kind of just sometimes. I'm. I'll be confess. I'm conscious of just spending too much time on it and wondering why you're sort of frittering away hours looking at nonsense. Yeah, of course. It, this happens to all of us. But but that is by design. And and I think what we at Gap are really trying hard to to try and communicate at the moment is that it's not our fault it's not your fault as a parent it's not your fault as a kid it's not your fault as an adult as a as a sentient being that you are spending or your kid is spending more time on more websites or on random bits of content than you than you meant to it's the design of the product that's what it's meant to do and they're brilliant at it and they have this unprecedented power that comes from extraordinary amounts of data about all of us you know we have all been volunteering all of this behavioral data to these websites for decades now 20 years since facebook got going and they combine that with extraordinary computing power harnessed by ai and machine learning and they point all of that at a single completely fallible human brain so it's not a fair fight and it's it's kind of almost equivalent to blaming an addict for wanting more of an addictive substance. It's like, well, the substance is addictive and you're now hooked. Like you don't have a huge amount of, of control in that situation. So I think it's a very, very unhealthy kind of discourse that you still hear and you know, you, you hear this and politicians say it. Um, you hear it on kind of radio phone-ins and stuff that you know that, oh, back in my day, parenting was parenting and people just told kids how much time they could spend watching telly and that was that it it doesn't work like that anymore and this i think is among the most addictive of substances if you like you probably can't call it a substance but you know what i mean that that we've ever we've ever seen so this podcast we're looking at reimagining areas of everyday life so the idea of virtual luxury what would that be i think for a long time you mentioned it's been 20 years since since Facebook came out. For a long time, the idea that was pushed was that these platforms were agnostic. You know, the tech is agnostic. The tech is the tech. It's a tool, it's a platform, and how people use it, what content they put up there, that's just, you know, that's human beings. But the idea that the tech is agnostic, aside from whether that was true or not, is that what we want? Like, what... What would an online world that was supportive and offered us comfort and security and was less 
I mean, is, is it just about advertising? Is it about selling us less stuff? What is it we should be aiming for? I think it's important to stress that no one is seriously suggesting that you try and sort of put the genie back in a bottle, that you say social media is completely irreparably bad. We shouldn't have it at all. The internet should kind of be turned off. Like Even if you wanted that to happen, it can't happen. So it's a much more interesting question to say, well, how could it be different? And I don't know whether it ever was neutral or agnostic, as you put it, but certainly it was different. You know, when I first had a Facebook account, my feed was chronological. So if I logged on and recently my friend A had posted something about what they were doing this evening, but friend B hadn't posted anything for a couple of days, even though what they posted two days ago was like really, you know, heartfelt and interesting or maybe inflammatory or something, I wouldn't see what friend B said. I would see what friend A said because it had happened most recently. And then I remember the stage where you they sort of switched it to the algorithmic feed. So presenting what they think is most likely to engage you but you still had the option to switch back to chronological so you could just see most re- you know the most recent posts and then that went all together and it's the same with twitter which obviously now you know the last 6 months or so has changed enormously in a number of ways but originally with twitter you got to the bottom of your twitter feed it said you're all caught up so if you'd read all the things that the people you follow had posted recently it got to the end. And that's like finishing a glass of water. It's called a stopping cue. Like you get to the bottom of the glass, you see the bottom and you stop. You don't just keep pouring. And the same is true of our kind of digital lives. You know, it's important to have a have something that tells you now is the time to stop. And then they realized, well, we can make more money if we just get rid of that stopping cue, if we just keep that endless scroll. So I think Chronological is not necessarily just the answer to everything because it can also be really boring. Like, we do want the internet to provide entertainment and stimulation. And if it's just pictures of your boring family posting and what they're, you know, what they've eaten or your slightly problematic uncle saying something slightly problematic again, like, that's not necessarily what you want to use the internet for. But there is something better inherently better about the kind of the intentional and less deliberately provocative setup of the chronological feed rather than the the engagement based news feed which we have now and what are your thoughts on what that kind of what would a virtual luxury look like what could it look like what would what would an online world that seeks to meet the needs of children in particular that you spoke about earlier what would that what could that look like? One reference point for me with that discussion with what that looks like is a big theory within psychology called self-determination theory, which has got a huge amount of research behind it. And to completely summarise it and not do justice to it at all, it finds that there are really three core things that are core to human flourishing and having a good life in the deeper sense of the word. And they are our autonomy our relationships and our competency. So being in the driving seat of our lives, having close, authentic relationships and feeling a sense of kind of competence, you know, that that we're doing well in what we're doing and and being creative. So for me, an online world would would look at those deepest aspirations and, and seek to support young people in meeting them. Now, I could talk about how we do that 
in terms of deep design, fundamentally, let's start with getting rid of surveillance capitalism um, and the attention economy. I think it's just a fundamentally parasitic business model that we just need to call time on now. You know, we wouldn't expose our children to other forms of parasites or other forms of deep manipulation. And so why are we doing that here? And then in terms of just some kind of quick, easy things that would make the online world a much better place. Obviously, the online safety bill has a whole host of things which I think are very positive. And I think also just building in more intentionality is the word I'd use. So moments where children can make choices about what they want to see and what they don't want to see and inviting them to reflect on on their deeper aspirations rather than just going with the flow. And indeed, you know, I, I ran some focus groups with young people looking at, you know, what, a, what does a good internet look like for them? And this was something that they were saying, you know, it's actually social media, et cetera, that where they can say what they want to see, where they can choose their interests rather than having them, you know, their interests kind of decided for them and, and being turned to certain interests above others. So what can be done? Like big tech? You know, it's the first word, big. These companies are huge. They're massive in terms of revenue, in terms of power. And we've spoken about wanting to be, for us as users, to be intentional. What can be done to kind of rein in the power of the big tech companies and, you know, give give the power back to the people? Regulate is, I think, the first answer. Like, you know, the... These companies have proven themselves now unwilling to self-regulate in a meaningful way. And it it kind of makes sense. You know, what they want to do is make as much money as possible. So they're not going to alter their business model because it's proved wildly effective. <laughs> These are among the richest companies that have ever existed. And many of them have taken, you know, a handful of years to go from nothing to mega corporation status. So I think governments have to step up. There is clearly a vital and important role for the state to play in saying what is and isn't acceptable in how these platforms operate. And the good news is that is happening more than it's been ever happening before. I think for a long time, national governments and the EU and other institutions were in awe of these kind of brilliant tech engineers, you know, kind of Silicon Valley bros sitting around in their T-shirts on beanbags, inventing these incredible products and often products which helped them get elected as well. So, you know, that was another interest of theirs. But I think there was a, a slight kind of detachment and an awe and a sense that like, let's just leave these guys to, you know, they're the frontiers of this new technology. Let's just leave them to get on with it. And now the impacts of their products are so clearly documented. We know what happens in terms of the increase in hate, the increase in online to offline violence, um, the extent to which elections are being manipulated. You know, democracy is very demonstrably under threat thanks to the power of these of these products and the, and the ease with which they're harnessed by bad actors. So I think momentum has shifted and the lawmakers are now much more up for the idea of, of trying to rein in big tech. The good news is that regulation is starting to appear in some really key places. So in California, where all of the tech 
companies are headquartered. And in Europe, where the kind of appetite for reigning in big tech is seems greatest, a recent a recent law there uh, called the Digital Services Act is a lot more exciting than it seems and puts meaningful restrictions on on tech companies and how they operate. And just recently here in the UK, after a very, very long time, a very long, slow, torturous process, there is a kind of equivalent piece of legislation called the Online Safety Bill, which will very soon become the Online Safety Act. And thanks to some really impressive efforts by some parliamentarians and lots of campaigners, that bill, which for a long, long time was looking at trying to regulate the content that people, particularly children, came into contact with, which is a bit like playing whack-a-mole, really, if you're just, you know, there are billions of posts every day and you're trying to sort of desperately try and stop the worst ones of popping up. It's a thankless task. And, and now that bill, that piece of legislation is much more, not sufficiently, but much more focused on the systems that promote that content in the first place and trying to say to the platforms, you have a responsibility to work out how much harm those systems themselves are causing and what the risk of encountering that harm is for children in particular. And you have an obligation to mitigate those risks and mitigate those harms. And the next period of time here in the UK, or the next kind of 12, 18 months, will be really, really key because the regulator of this new legislation, Ofcom, who regulate the communications industry, they are going to have to work out the real granular detail of how this is all going to work in practice. And I think our role as campaigners and as advocates for a safer online world is to really demonstrate to them the drip, drip, the attritional harm that comes from a business model which serves ever more of whatever it is you want or whatever it is might be irresistible to you. So I think the more we can do that, the more we can present those harms to Ofcom and the more that it just becomes part of the public consciousness, the better the chances of that regulation being strong here in the UK. And how can people get involved in that? Well, in a short term, you can sign a petition. And that sounds, you know, potentially not the most world-changing thing in the world, but it's important. 75,000 people at the time of recording have signed a petition that Global Action Plan coordinated as part of our work with Dove, the major sellers of soap and other cosmetics, uh, who have been campaigning on toxic beauty content online. And we are going to deliver that petition to Ofcom on the day that they receive their powers. And we're going to say to them, look, here are tens of thousands, potentially 100,000 people by the time we hand it in, who are concerned that social media is really harming, in this case, the mental well-being of women and young girls through the perpetuation of, of toxic beauty content. And that is, of course, completely linked to the business model of, of the platform. So sign that petition. You can find it on the Global Action Plan website. And hopefully over the next period of time, you might be able to help us by sharing any stories you have, because I think facts and figures and statistics are necessary and important, but they're never enough to compel decision makers or, or people regulating laws to go as far as they can. They need stories. They need to hear about you know where you're happy to share this, to hear about the harms that you or young people you know are suffering as a result of, of social media shoving all of this stuff down 
down our feeds. So look out for opportunities to share those stories via Global Action Plan's channels. I don't think any of us really want the internet to be a place of, you know, hate and division, just like we don't want the real world to be like that. There, there's no reason that social media needs to be a cesspool. Like it, it can be fun and it can do all of the things that we know it probably originally was designed to do. It can connect people. It can provide safe havens of, you know, niche but important communities where you might struggle to find other people who are part of that community in the real world. Like it, it can be a great place to find news that isn't covered in the mainstream press. Like it can be all of the good, fun, enriching, safe, educating things that, that we want it to be. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the tech companies were all sitting around a table saying, let's start with that, you know, let's start with children's best interests. And, you know, we can say a lot about what those are and then design a technology that is going to support those interests, support those children growing into adults across their life course to flourish. The idea of virtual luxury might feel a bit nebulous, but if we can visualise luxury for all in other areas of our everyday lives, then why not in the online world? And there are parallels with some of the other conversations I've had. Both my guests spoke about the importance of autonomy and intentionality, and that it's the way these systems are designed, not just how we use them, that causes negative impacts. By putting children's well-being at the heart of these platforms, we could all benefit from better, richer, more fulfilling, safer online experiences that aren't centred on consumerism, which I think is a pretty neat vision of virtual luxury. I'd like to thank our guests, Oliver Hayes, Policy and Campaigns Lead at Global Action Plan, and Dr Ellie Hansen, Clinical Psychologist and Researcher. If you like this episode, please do subscribe to the series wherever you get your podcasts and like, comment and share the programme. You can find notes and links for the show on our website at globalactionplan.org.uk forward slash podcast. And you can get in touch with us by email at podcast at globalactionplan.org.uk or send a voice note to 020 4534 3913. Our Lives, Our Planet is a Global Action Plan podcast presented by me, Natasha Locken, and produced by Claire McCowland.